You're listening to a Garden City Chapel podcast. For a complete list of podcasts, visit our website at www.gardencitychapel.com. Amen. Thanks, Carl and Heather. Thanks for the nice things you said, too. If I knew you were going to build me up like that, I'd have worked harder on the message. That's just a little preacher joke. Invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, I'm preaching through the book of Acts and really enjoying seeing the birth of the church in the first century. And really the topic this morning, the title of the message is Knowing Who You Worship. I think there's a lot of misinformation, misunderstanding about worship. Worship's not just music. Although that's a favorite way we have of worshiping. Let let me give you an overly simplistic definition of worship. Uh, This isn't, uh, I don't know, you won't find this in Webster's. This is just kind of one that I work with. Worship is ascribing worth to whatever you consider most valuable. In fact, you'll notice in that definition, there's nothing about God. Because you were made to worship. You will worship something. And so, truly, whatever it is that's most valuable to you, that's what you're worshiping and you're already doing it. The word most often used for worship in the New Testament is a Greek word, proskuneo. It's two words, and it literally means to kiss toward. So if you don't know God, you really can't worship God. You may be kissing toward something you don't know. One of the scariest, perhaps riskiest thing I ever did as a youth pastor, I had a kissing contest. As a youth pastor, we did this youth ministry banquet where all the youth parents were there and all the students were there. And I got up in front of them and said, "Okay, we're going to have a kissing contest. And I picked three of the prettiest girls in the youth group. I said, we're going to have a kissing contest, find out which one of these girls kisses the best. I need some volunteers. Every guy's hand went up. Well, I had already arranged this. I knew who I was going to pick. I picked Danny and Troy, two of my seniors in the youth group. Two good guys, but, you know, they thought, man, what have we ever done to Robert, man? He's rewarding us. This is great. I said, Danny and Troy, come up here. I need your help. I need you to help me determine which one of these girls is the best kisser. And I said, now, to keep it fair, we're going to take you backstage and put a blindfold on you. Teenagers, any time your youth minister sends you off the stage and puts a blindfold on you, something good is not about to happen, okay? I don't know why it is. We can still pull these tricks after all these years in youth ministry. Something good is not about to happen. What Troy and um, Danny didn't know is that I took the three girls off the stage and brought up Troy and Danny's mothers. Now, Troy and Danny come out one by one, blindfolded. Danny's the first one. He comes out blindfolded, and he's playing to the crowd. You know, he's going, hoo, 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 and the girls are just laughing, and the guys are getting a little sick. And they're real thankful at this point that I didn't call on them. I had set this up weeks ahead of time. Their mamas were so willing to do this. They thought, thought, my son hadn't kissed me in years. This is great. And so I had each of the guys kiss their mom three times, and I, I moved the mom down the stage. And as soon as they took their blindfold off, you could see they didn't know they were kissing their mama. So that teaches you something about being careful what you kiss towards. (laughs) 
And my prayer for you is to take that illustration, but hopefully it plants something better than that in your mind. And that is, as we worship God, you do that by the way you live. You know what? If somebody follows you around very long and just listens to you talk and sees how you conduct your activity and where you spend your money and places you go, they'll be able to tell you what you worship. Because you're going to worship and you're going to attach worth to whatever in your life is most valuable. Let me read the first part of this passage in Acts, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14, just the first few verses to start. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the Lord, uh, people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Jews and the, and the Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Luconia and Lystra, and Derby and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. I want you to see, first of all, just how the people were divided. They come into an area, and this had been the mode of operation for Paul and Barnabas all along up to this point. Anytime they entered a city, first place they went was the synagogue. And part of the reason for that is they went to the Jews first, but if they'd gone to the Gentiles, they would have been considered unclean to enter the synagogue. So they went to the synagogue, and you're going to see that Strategy change even in this passage and from then on. They went into the synagogue first and there they would proclaim Jesus Christ as the Savior. And I want you to see something else in this passage. If you, if you understand that the Jews knew God, they should have known the Old Testament and all the prophecies about the coming Messiah. The problem was some of them couldn't accept the fact that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of that. But still, in a sense, for a Jew to be converted was simply connecting the dots. Okay, yeah, I get it. I've already been a worshiper of God. Now I understand that this Jesus really is the Messiah. Risen from the dead. Paid the penalty for my sin. As we get deeper into Acts, what you end up seeing now are the message going to Gentiles. And you'll see it later in this passage. Where the Gentiles didn't have any dots to connect. They were pagan. They were lost. Really no understanding of God. In fact, their really only understanding was mythology. So they go into the synagogue and they preach... And here's what happened. Some people believed. Some people, Jews and Gentiles, placed their faith in Jesus Christ, became believers, became followers of Jesus Christ. But a problem arose. In fact, you see this even when Jesus preached in the Gospels. It's like some believed and some walked away disbelieving. So the ones that believed are now being added to the church, and the church has grown so much that they quit counting. First few chapters of Acts, we see them count 3,000. Then we see them count 5,000 men. From then on, it's just a multitude. The church is exploding all over. Growth is happening. But the Jews who disbelieved, in fact, the word that's used here means to disbelieve willfully and even perversely. The Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles. What does that mean? Well, the word means to, to literally excite against and even embitter, literally poison their mind. While, the, while Paul and Barnabas 
are preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, sharing the gospel. The disbelieving Jews have so hardened their heart that they're getting in the ear of the disbelieving Gentiles, the ones who need to know Christ. And they're saying things like, don't believe that. Don't buy that. That's not true. Let me tell you the truth. And so they come to a spiritually hungry crowd of people. And you've got two voices speaking. And the problem for the Gentiles is, I would imagine they viewed the Jews as the experts on God. They were the religious people. And yet the religious people were the ones trying to turn their minds and poison their mind against the gospel. Folks, I want to transfer that even into our day and age. I grew up in a church that was fairly legalistic, and I had two pastors growing up who really preached, I believe, faithfully the Word of God. And yet I saw some of God's people, and the witness I got from some of them was just religion. And in fact, there were times I thought, if that's what following God's all about, I really don't want anything to do with that. You know the kind of people I'm talking about, people that have been inoculated with religion, but don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Why do we inoculate people? We inoculate them with a a form of a disease so they don't get the real thing. And the sad thing is, religious people, even of our day, can look the part, but they've just been inoculated so they don't get the real thing. The enemy doesn't care if you become religious. But at all costs, he'll throw all weapons against you to keep you from getting the real thing. So while Paul and Barnabas are preaching the good news, these Jewish leaders, these religious people are saying, that's not good news, that's bad news. And we're stirring up their mind, literally poisoning them. And then something interesting happens. The next verse says, so they spent a long time there. What's the human tendency? The human tendency is, if you go somewhere where folks don't like you, and folks are fighting against you, the human tendency is, let's get out of here. Let's go somewhere else. But it says, no, they spent a long time there. So the opposition is not what ultimately would make them flee and go somewhere else. They literally spent a long time there and literally building up a church. Those that believed formed a church in that region. But that wasn't good enough for the religious people. The religious people were so wanted so to divide the people that they made an attempt. Literally, they took a violent impulse to assault Paul and Barnabas. Their goal was to mistreat and literally, ultimately, to stone them. Now, in a Jewish mind, the reason you would stone someone was for speaking words of blasphemy. So basically what these Jews were saying is they are blaspheming God. They are taking the name of God and lifting it up as meaning nothing. They are telling people untruth about God. That's what the religious people were saying. And so they took up stones to stone them. Now, when that became known to Paul and Barnabas, they did leave the city. Okay, The opposition didn't do it. But at the threat of their life, they realized, okay, it's time to move on from here. We've established a church. We've spent many days here. We've preached the gospel. We're going to move on. In fact, the cities that they move on to are in a region of of Laconia. And uh, there's these two towns that we're going to mention there. But these are really more out-of-the-way places. And that's where they're heading next. But here's the interesting thing. In fact, we've already seen it in Acts. When persecution came, the gospel spread. 
The gospel couldn't be contained in Jerusalem. When persecution came to the believers in Jerusalem, it just meant instead of squelching it, instead of putting a fire out, it just fanned it and blew it way up north into Asia Minor and to other places and even down to Ethiopia where we see the Ethiopian eunuch on the road back home coming to Christ. That's what happened. Now, our tendency is, when you're opposed, is just shut up. But the truth is, and we don't see it as much in America as we do other countries, but there are places in the world today where religious persecution is rampant. And yet, in those places, the church is flourishing. Why is that? Because Jesus said, I will build my church. And that's what he's up to today, both in this country and all around the world. People coming to Christ. So persecution drove the church even further. Let's look at then the worship is confused. Look at the next part of the passage, beginning in verse 8. The word is pronounced lustra. At lustra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him, And it seemed that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leapt up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Luconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates And wanted to offer sacrifice along with the crowds. As Paul and Barnabas come into this region, and they come to these two towns, there's a man sitting there. Now, we don't see him going to the synagogue here. Apparently, the Jewish population was not so great that there was even a synagogue. We're we're into fresh territory now. We're into truly the Gentiles, the pagans. Here's a guy from his mother's womb, from birth has never been able to walk, no strength in his feet, and Paul sees him sitting there. Now, why is it important to know all that about the guy? Because he's about to be healed. And the truth is, if this was something that had happened recently, if they thought this guy had an accident or this guy had a disease that caused him not to walk, then the miraculous could be explained naturally. Well, he just got better. He got over it. He had rehab. But this guy had never walked. In fact, he was sitting much like we see the beggars back in Jerusalem in the early parts of Acts, every day they went just to beg for enough money to buy bread for that day. That's what the guys do. The other thing is to know that this man had been that way since birth, everybody in town would have known it. Everybody in town would have known this guy. Yeah, that's the guy we see always sitting there begging. And so they see this guy who'd never walked, but he listens to Paul. And Paul, it says, ultimately fixes his gaze on this man. And seeing that he had faith to be made well, speaks to him. You say, well, what did Paul see in this guy? I don't know if it's just that Paul read his face, but I would imagine part of the message that Paul is preaching is that Jesus came to earth and healed people. And this guy got the light bulb in his eye to think, you know what? I believe. I believe that he can do that. And maybe the guy even said something because the word used for Paul saw is a word that could even be used to say, to to know or to understand. So at some point, Paul gained understanding, either by just looking at the guy or something the guy said. Because often Jesus would say, if you have faith to be made well, you can walk. And the person would respond verbally. We don't know if that happened here or not, but Paul somehow understands this guy is ready to believe. He's ready to trust Christ. 
And so Paul says, stand up and walk. And he says it in a loud voice, which is bold, if you think about it. If you're not real sure of something, you're going, hey, let's try something. I'm kind of getting this impression that maybe you can walk it. Just without anybody saying, just say, get up, see what happens. No. Paul sticks his neck out on the line here. The God that I believe in is able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond anything I can ask or think. And I believe he's telling me that you can walk. Get up and walk. And the guy doesn't just get up and walk. Now, keep in mind, the guy has never walked. You ever watch toddlers learn to walk? It takes a while. That's why we call them toddlers. Why we put all the furniture at eye level of a toddler, I don't know. We need airbags on the furniture. Because they're going to end up with little dings on their head. Why? Because you've got to learn to test out and, and gain strength. Now, this guy had seen people walk, but he had never walked a day in his life. But, folks, we're dealing with a miracle. The guy doesn't just get up and test out his legs. He he gets up and leaps for joy. Why? Because one thing, he had faith to be made well. He's placed his faith in Jesus Christ. This guy isn't just going to be able to walk the rest of his life, but ultimately one day this guy's going to see Jesus face to face because he's his Savior. So this guy leaps for God, leaps for joy, worshiping God. And the people misunderstand what's going on. The people raise their voice, and here's what they say in their language. They say, the gods have come down to us. These two men are gods, and they started calling Barnabas Zeus, or some translations say Jupiter, depending on whether it's Greek or Roman God. And they said, and Paul is Hermes or Mercury. He's the messenger of the gods, because he's the one doing all the talking. And you think, where did they get this from? Well, there was an ancient Roman poem that told about Zeus and Hermes coming to this town. In fact, there's, this is in history. We, see, we find this poem was written years before this happened. And the story goes that Zeus and uh, Hermes came to this town and asked for food and lodging, and they were rejected. So because of that, the town was judged. In fact, a flood came over. And the two guys that did give them food and Lodging ended up, ended up with mansions. And so these people knew the story. They had heard the poem and in their Greek or Roman mythology. They bought into that. So they thought, we're not missing this chance again. These guys have just done something miraculous. So rather than giving the credit to the living God, they give it to a dead, fictional, mythological entity. Zeus and Hermes or Jupiter and Mercury. And what's interesting is the priest out at the temple to Zeus, he doesn't, he doesn't, obviously he didn't know who Zeus was either because he thinks maybe this is them. And so he brings a bullock all decked out with garlands and gilded horns and all dressed up for a sacrifice. And you think, well, that had to take some time. What's going on here? First of all, it took a while for Paul and Barnabas to even know what was going on because they didn't speak their language. So as these people are screaming, hey, these are gods, let's come worship them, Paul and Barnabas for a little while are going, going on here? Then as they see Zeus, the, the priest of Zeus show up with this bullock, I mean, that took some time. It's not like they had a, a bull standing around on standby. He had to get this thing dressed up and get him to the gates of the city and basically say, I want to join you in worshiping. Now keep in mind, this is the chief priest to Zeus. Basically saying, I don't know what I've been worshiping all this time either. So if y'all are thinking this is it, I'm not going to miss my chance either. I've brought a bull for the sacrifice. 
Well, Paul and Barnabas finally realize what happened. And that's where we get to the last part of the passage. Let me read that. Verses 14 through 18. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness. And that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things, with difficulty they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. I want you to see in this last part, just true worship is clarified. Paul and Barnabas have these people worshiping them. Again, human nature is when people are worshiping you to maybe try to rationalize and justify, hey, this is kind of nice. And some might even think, well, you know what, let them go ahead and do it. And maybe now that we've got their attention, we can turn their worship and explain to them the true God. No, it doesn't work that way. And Paul and Barnabas took it so seriously that literally it says they tore their garments. An indication of mourning. An indication that blasphemy was taking place. And they would have no part of it. And they rush out into the crowd and begin saying, Don't worship us. We're like you. Now keep in mind, these people had thought Paul and Barnabas were gods that had come down to earth. Well, they were about to find out there is a God. And he did come down to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. But he was crucified on a cross, dead and buried, raised on the third day, and is now ascended to the right hand of God. And that's the message that Paul and Barnabas have to get to them. Don't worship us. We're just like you. We have the same sinful nature that you do. But then he turned them back to God. He said, don't worship these vain things, literally empty things. What had they been worshiping? They'd been worshiping idols. They had been worshiping things made out of wood or stone that represented to them these mythological gods. And what's Paul saying? Those things are empty. Don't worship them. Remember our definition of worship? Worship is ascribing worth to whatever you consider most valuable. And I would dare say none of you have an idol at home. I doubt you do. I doubt you have like a little something at home that you bow down to that's made out of wood or stone. But I'd say this. If you're not worshiping Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've got something just like an idol. There's something comfortable to us about worshiping stuff we make and control with our own hands. And what Paul is saying is, those things are dead. Those things are empty. They will not ultimately bring you fulfillment. And they certainly will not impact, in a good way, your eternal life. You're going to be lost apart from God, clinging on to stuff that you made that you're worshiping. And he said, instead, turn your worship, turn your heart To the living God. Then he says something interesting. He says, you know, for a while God allowed the nations, and literally he's talking about the pagan Gentiles, because God had called the Jewish people, and they had been a people for his own possession. John 1 says Jesus came to his own. They didn't receive him, so he ended up going to the Gentiles. To those that did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. But Paul says, for a while, 
God just kind of let you go your own way. But the whole time, he still left a witness that he was the creator of both the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that you see, he's created all of it. Now, what they had done is explained all that away with mythology. Sadly, we do the same thing today. Sadly, today, people look at the creation and either end up worshiping it or explaining away the origin of it by things like evolution and other things that we don't have time to talk about today. But church, here's the danger. Even the people in the church want to be so much like the world that they've explained away intelligent design and understanding that God created everything that you see. They kind of explained it away by using some of the same language that the world's using. The world's come up with solutions, and the solutions don't make sense. But what they've added to the solution is time. And they said millions and millions of years ago, this happened. Well, you can, you can kind of promote any lie as long as you say, well, it happened so long ago. <laughs> it's, it's a lie. God created the heavens and the earth. This stuff didn't get here by accident or random chance. And he said, even in the midst of him not explaining himself, he was still giving you grace. He was still giving you the rain to water your, your, your crops so that you'd have a fruitful harvest. And the Bible says, even while they're saying these things, they still had difficulty restraining the people from wanting to worship them. Folks, here's the bottom line. Paul and Barnabas are sharing the good news. And yet, even in the midst of telling some people the truth and good news, we've got to recognize that we have an enemy that so desperately wants to distort that, so desperately wants to confuse that. And so I ask you this morning, ultimately, what are you worshiping? Are you worshiping stuff? Augustine put it this way, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshiped. God is a living God who is worthy of our worship. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of this passage. God, thank you for the message that we hear. And yet, God, we'd have to recognize that there's still people today who would love to explain away the living God. There's still times that we desire to worship stuff that we can control or even try to control you who deserves to be worshipped instead. So God, thank you that the good news is that Jesus Christ was born. He taught. He did miracles. He healed people. He pointed people to the Father. He was crucified, placed in a tomb. But three days later, He rose from the dead, conquering death and offering to us eternal life. Thank You. Thank You for forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. Thank You in Jesus' name.